can turn bikes in Europe like we had, you know. Got little winding roads that go up and down in the Alps. That's why they have these little cars that hardly go, you know, 15, 20 miles an hour. That little... <laughs> oh, we live in a turnpike world here in America, believe me. And right out there at this very minute, right now, there are probably 7 million guys listening to the radio. 710 on a dial. And they're playing turnpike tag. <laughs> which is the American bullfight. Oh, yeah. And that Grand Prix is sitting down there with the wide track. And old Howard is here behind his jeweled steering wheel. On his Florentine plastic upholstery stain proof. <laughs> and over here is little Esther Jane. And she's dreaming that if she could get to the village... And she keeps looking over poor old Howard. Howard, the ex-basketball star from Muncie Tech. Howard, who keeps every Saturday saying, why don't we go to the hockey game? And she says, no, no. Why don't they have ballet here? Why can't I go where Sophia Loren goes on Saturday night? She doesn't go to the hockey game. Sophia Loren doesn't go to Howard Johnson. And here I am, and she's sitting there with her little dream, her little nimbus of fantasy around her. And Howard is sitting here. Why do I have to go to Howard Johnson's? Sardis. That's where the playboys go. These little, what do they call them? He doesn't quite know how to say it, see? He's read about it. It's those italicized words that you always run across in Hemingway, you know? He says, that little boyt, that little, that little intimey boyt, that's where he wants to go, and instead he's going to the Red Rooster hamburger joint, and he's driving and driving and driving, and then he could see coming up from behind him those yellow, green, red, blue, and orange lights of a big semi-tractor trailer. That's the most exciting moment on the turnpike, right, gang? And you can just see him coming up, you know. You can feel the ground. You can feel that reverberating diesel engine and that great big Cummings motor is booming it out. You're sitting there, see? And you watch him come up. Yellow, green, red lights coming up there, and it's exciting. It's kind of like approaching Armageddon. He's coming up closer and closer. And then you see those big letters, you know, that hang on the side there. It says, Hemingway. Hemingway, what a great name for a truck. <laughs> if you see those names, Hemingway, it says. And he's sitting there in his car. And then, boom, he goes past. And you feel that rocking. You know that in the wake? Shh. And then Howard pulls in his gut muscles. He says, watch this, baby. And the chick is somewhere off on the French Riviera with Razzano Brazzi. Somewhere she is playing in a movie directed by Jules Dassin. Yes, somewhere she is playing a mandolin. And outside of her little Greek peasant hut, is a fisherman played by Tony Perkins. <laughs> what a great fisherman, Perkins, you know. <laughs> I'm afraid when Perkins gets in a boat, it rows him. 
<laughs> and so, so here they go, you see, and on comes Saturday night. And they're both sitting in the car. You got the scene? And as long as nothing comes in from the outside, they could keep the fantasy going. Do you realize how happy Indianapolis would be if there was no New York? <laughs> really? Seriously, think about this. Think of how the rest of the world... What do you think... Why do you think the rest of the world is mad at the United States? Do you think it's because of our foreign policy? Oh, really? Do you? Do you think it's because we're rotten? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I've traveled too much and lived a little too much. It's because, and I submit to you, America itself is the New York of the world. It would be easier to live in a little peasant village in Crete if there was no New York, if there was no United States, where somewhere, somehow, people live forever in these evening dresses. <laughs> right, gang? Look at us here. <laughs> yep, and forever turn out French rare bits made of esoteric cheddar cheeses. Drink ancient wine and live in a kind of orange, four-color world of Vogue magazine. Yes, right. Hear her back there? Well, now these things, these things all come to roost on Christmas. We're here now, and it's the night after Christmas. And I'm going to warn you that I am perfectly aware, gang, here in the limelight, that this is one of the most dangerous nights of the year. Are you aware that police records show that the night after Christmas, just like the night after New Year's, is the night it all happens? <laughs> oh, man, those cops are sitting in their cars tonight waiting for that call. And it comes constantly. Out there in the darkness, they're fist-fighting their way through this night after Christmas. And why? Well, we all vaguely feel let down. We, we've been building up to this thing, you know, like for all year they say there's a hundred days to Christmas. There are 30 days to Christmas. There are 19 days to Christmas. 15 days. You walk around, you get the sweat going inside you, you know, this, this year it's going to work. This year it's going to be Christmas joy untrammeled. This year, peace to the earth, goodwill to men. Oh, boy, yes. You, you get this thing going and you walk through Macy's and Gimbel's and they've got the stereophonic carillons playing and the, 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 the hymns are going out and the whole scene, you know. And then it says, 12 days to Christmas. 12. 10. 9. It's like countdown. 5. 4. Now you're beginning to pace. Even though, no, I don't care how hip you are, how cool you are, there is a thing inside of you. You fight it. You say, ah, it's just for kids. <laughs> you look back, you see, to make sure no one heard you too loud. Three days to Christmas. And by now you're hiding little things, you know. You're tying stuff up. You're working on it. Two days to Christmas. And everybody in the colleges all over the country are let out. This is a big moment, you know. And by the way, it's a very nervous moment. 
Because as a kid stays in college longer, he hates two things. To get home. Oh, boy, they hate to come home after about the junior year. And then they hate to go back. It's a terrible problem. You know, it's, it's really, it's, you're, you're between the devil and the deep blue sea. And over here on one, one department, you're, you're totally dead. And on the other department, you can't go back home again. So here you are. It's Christmas time. It's nervous time. Mothers sit out there in the Midwest and say, I suppose all he's going to do is phone again. And here you are plotting on how to get out of phoning. You know? Oh, yeah, it's a terrible moment. You know, isn't that that awful scene? I'll tell you, there are more. You know that, that sign when you go into the phone booths and it says, Call home for Christmas. That's a scary sign. I would like to know how many fantastic, unbelievable family scenes have been played out over that friendly, long-distance phone line. Somebody took... That's my mother! Tell her I haven't got a job yet! None of her business! <laughs> oh, man. Production all the way, friends. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, no, it's a funny, it's a funny business. This telephone call. In fact, I visited a friend of mine this afternoon, and there's this glum. That's no, you know, when you walk into the living room and the wreaths are hanging here, the Christmas tree is drooping a little bit. You know, and you see a couple of terrible-looking ties laying under the tree there. Everybody's sort of sitting around, and you have this sense that something has happened. Nobody's saying anything. And so I sit down with this group. There's, you know, man, woman, one kid. The other two have cut out already. And I'm sitting there, and they bring out the fruitcake and a sherry. That's a great combination. And I'm sitting there drinking the sherry. And... and Gradually, it began to develop. She said to him, she says, look, I told you not to call. Right. And he says, but she wants me to call every year. I said, well, what is it? Come on, tell me. And she says, oh, he just talked to his mother. I said, but what happened? She said, I don't know. I did. There's that awful feeling. Now, I think maybe this is more a male thing than a female thing. You dial, and you got this, uh, this excitement going. You know, I've got to talk to home. And you're usually in some rotten little booth on 46th Street. There's a bum staggering around out there, you know. <laughs> Have you ever really looked at the floor of one of those phone booths? You realize there's a lot more goes on in those things been just telephoning mother, you know? And you wonder how they get away with it with all the glass. <laughs> and you never see it yourself, you know? <laughs> You're standing in there, you know, looking on this stuff, and you walk like that. There's this fantastic smell in the phone booth. And you look up, and there's this little sign which says, Call Home, and it shows that mother they always show, you know, with the big white teeth. 
If you notice that mothers in ads always look like a 19-year-old lady wearing a white wig. <laughs> if you notice that, she's looking out, you know, she's got the phone that says, Hi, Sonny! And you, 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 you start out with that, that wonderful feeling of hope that it's going to be different. And you look up and somebody has written something next to mother. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Look at all the embarrassed guys. I'll tell you, you can tell the readers from the writers here. <laughs> you know, you, you look up there. These are, these are really male experiences. You look up there and you say, oh, boy. And you wonder the number of little old ladies wearing lace collars and little purple dresses and carrying brocaded handbags that have called from this booth. And I've looked up at... You know, that's another male thing. I suppose I shouldn't talk about it on Christmas, but that's another male thing. Men, have you ever been with this beautiful chick who looks like she's made out of Dresden, China? You know, just a magnificent chick. And you've been trying to impress her for weeks, and finally you're taking her out to go to some very expensive joint on the east side. You're all dressed up, and you've worked with your little collars and the whole thing. How many times do you, t do you try three shirts on before you get the one that shows your magnificent jaw off right? <laughs> this is something women don't know about men. You know, so what's the matter with his collar? You know? Somehow, you know, man, that's another male thing. Have you had the days, men, when you get, you, you look in the mirror and you just, for some reason or other, look rotten? You just use your rotten look today, you know. Yesterday you were great. Today you're rotten, you know, and all kinds of little things, the little footballs hanging all over you, and your shave is kind of cruddy, you know, and everything in your neck is flat. That is the one day of truth in your life, friends. <laughs> look carefully. Dorian Gray, this is the moment. Well, this is one of the worst things that a male has to face. This is a real male thing. You've got this chick. She's beautiful. Chiseled profile. She's delicate. You know that kind of female that, that is, is kind of a rare violin? And you are preparing to play a sonata. You know, that sort of thing. And you've been working up to this moment. And you go over to her place. You pick her up. And the next thing you know, you are walking down a long corridor in the subway. And those unseen friends have been there before you. How, what is your technique of walking past one of those signs, man? You know, it's written all over the wall, you know. Some guy's written all over the Levy, you know, that, that Levy bread thing? The one that says you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's. Some guy with red crayon, blah, 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 he's written all... You know, and you can't ignore it, you know, so you walk along like this. You say, hey, look at those bricks. Aren't those interesting bricks? Hey, hey. You know, you're walking along. And then there's another one on the wine thing, the gallo wine. You walk, and, and gradually there's this faint sense of embarrassment. You know, men feel responsible for that, women. Are you aware that the male who's with you feels that somehow he did it? Because it's floating around in his mind, you know. 
and somebody beat him to it. And he's embarrassed. I don't know what women think of this. I've wondered how women feel about this thing. And there you are in the phone booth with all of those things going through your mind. Somebody has said a very interesting Freudian thing about mother. And such a nice lady. And you're standing there and you're dialing Hammond, Indiana. You dial, you know, it says area code 319. You have all those numbers, you know. It's very official now. You don't even argue with operators. They never even say, uh, there is a Mr. Shepherd on the phone. Will you accept it? That moment of truth. Can you imagine calling mother? And she says, no. No. That's why they did away with operators, friends. Yep, the phone company thinks. Either that or one of the executives had a mother. And so you dial and you wait. And you know that, that first moment, that exciting moment of trepidation. There's a kind of sick feeling in you. And yet there's excitement. That sound of, oh, oh. And there's that thing that says, I hope they're not home. I can always say, I call. I call. I call. I call. Oh. I'll give it two more rings. Oh. And then there's a click. There's a moment. You say, hi. Another moment. And you hear that voice floating over 10,000 miles. Who is this? You say, me. Me, mom, me. She says, Who? It's me, Merry Christmas, Ma! And she says, oh, Merry Christmas. You have not written in eight months. Remember that, friends. There is where the guilt comes in. And not only have you not written in eight months, you haven't even thought of home in eight months. And when you did think of it, it was with that vague irritation. That vague irritation, it's still out there. You know, that feeling that there's that little pimple that's still growing on you. Still there. And so you get that call through, and then finally there is that moment of, you both agreed now. It's Christmas. Let's forget about all that stuff. Let's forget about the fact you haven't called, you haven't written. She hasn't written, she hasn't called. And how are you? Very good. How are you? Then there's that brief pause. She says, oh, uh, okay, I guess. So what do you mean, Ma? How are you? She says, oh, I'm fine. Says, well, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Ma. <laughs> How's everything out there? Another brief pause. And the pause says, as if you give a damn. <laughs> That's what that pause means. She says, oh, things are... Ah, come see, come saw. Go along. Is it snowing, Ma? She says, no. <laughs> then she says, is it snowing there? You say, no. And a drunk wanders past. <laughs> this is the merry electronic AT&T Christmas call of the year. And tonight we are saluting all the guys who have made that call. All the people who are saying to themselves, it's going to be better this year. I'm going to go straight. I'm going to straighten it all up. 
Oh, yes, Christmas time is a time of great trauma. And, you know, I, I, I told a story. It's a funny thing. I saw my mother here about six months ago. And we talked about this very story. And to this day, she does not know exactly what happens. Each one of us, and, I, and I'll guarantee you right here at, this, at these tables, there are kids who have fantastic stories, things that have happened to them that their mother and father have no idea about. None whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you applauding? <laughs> Great Scott. You know, everybody is applauding what happened. Not my kid. <laughs> I know all about little Johnny. <laughs> and this little kid is sitting there. His two eyes are going sideways. That immediate feeling, oh boy, if he ever knew. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, you know, we all grow up with these stories inside of us because there are some stories we just can't tell. Just impossible to tell. And I'm going to tell you one tonight. That No, you can tell it to other people. Do you know that, that every last chick in this room can tell her analyst things she would never tell her mother or father in a million years? No, I'm serious. That's why, have you seen those... those those question and answer columns in the magazines that say things like, my daughter has been seeing a guy who runs a garage in our neighborhood. Now what should I... They talk to Ann Landers like they would never talk to their husband. Have you seen that? those columns? They're growing, boy, I'll tell you. One of the greatest ones I ever saw is one that was in Look Magazine a few years ago. Got my first insight into that you might say, journalistic confessional box. It was just beginning to grow, and I submit to you that within three years, our life is getting so abstract. We're so removed from each other. It's so automated. You are going to see stuff in those columns you wouldn't believe. Yeah, it's true. It's really going to start coming out. In fact, the other day I saw one that said, uh, Dear Ann Landers, there's a little girl, she said, I am in a very difficult situation, Anne. And uh, what should I do about it? Sign, worried. I'll bet. <laughs> and Ann Landers, with the typical aplomb of the journalistic answer, says, talk it out with your mother. <laughs> says, whenever you have problems like this, talk it out with your... Have you ever tried to talk out any of those problems with your mother? <laughs> Dear Ma, I, I, well, you remember the other night after the football game, Ma? And I got home an hour and a half late. You just don't talk those things out. You may scream them out. You don't talk them out. And so I am sitting in a dentist's office. One of the very first times I ever saw this scene develop. I'm sitting in a dentist's office. And it's a couple years back, and every last one of us are reduced to basic men in the dentist's office. <laughs> yeah, there's the gutty guy, you know, that sits over there. You know, you can see him all the time. He walks in, he says, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. 11 o'clock, oh huh? yeah, five minutes early. He says loudly to let everybody know he's got guts. Five minutes early, yeah, okay. 
Then there's the other guy that walks in hoping that they've canceled him. <laughs> that the doctor has a difficult emergency case. Hey, isn't that a great feeling when you go in and they say, the doctor's sick today. You say, gee whiz, I was looking forward to it, you know. You go out with that sweat. Well, I am sitting in a dentist's office over here on 57th Street, right in the heart of the high-rent district. You know, where dentistry is painful in many ways. There's <laughs> a little added soup on there, a pain. And I'm waiting in this waiting room, and you know how dentist waiting rooms are deliberately designed to go against what you're about to go through? You know, the little Courier and Ives prints, Grandma Moses, and here are the old National Geographics. And the walls are light pink. Wouldn't it be great if a dentist really came out and said it? And he had these Hieronymus Bosch paintings on the wall. People tormented and screaming in pain. There's a, you know, there's an old woodcut of a guy on the rack. And you, I, I submit that it would make you feel better. You'd come in and say, well, I'm not the only one, you know, sit down. But instead, all the people are living such great lives. They're in little sleighs, you know. And they're in little red barns, and they're eating maple syrup and all that. And you're sitting there, and this thing is going, you know. Goom, goom, goom. And I think one of the reasons that toothaches bother us is that we are all suddenly aware of eminent decay. It is like... The creeping pain, somehow you're rotting to pieces, and you know it. You're sitting there, and it's throbbing away. And Yeah, you can feel it, can't you? you know, and you're trying to pretend it isn't hurting as much, and that it's beginning to go away. So that when he asks you, does it hurt, you say, well, no, it's not very bad, actually. Ooh, and you got eight eyes going around your face. You sweat, and ooh, it's been since two o'clock last morning. It's a pain that starts a foot and a half above your head and goes all the way down into the ground with roots, big bicuspid yellow roots, and it just gets gunk, 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 gunk. And you're, you're, you're dressed in your $55 sport coat, your button-down collars, you got your $2 boxer shorts on, you know. You got your silk socks and all the water's going gunk. And you taste a funny, metallic, bloody, sort of strange taste. It's your guts. <laughs> They're coming out through this thing, you know. The next thing you know, your stomach is... You feel it, see. And all the while above you, Grandma Moses. You know, the old life. Well, they didn't have toothaches. They didn't have any of these pains. And I'm up there on 57th Street, see. And sitting over here is that beautiful girl that they always have now in doctor's offices with the pink phones, the little yellow phones, and the crisp white uniform. And off somewhere in the distance, you can hear the faint sound of Muzak playing beautiful, soft, escapist string music. Somewhere over the rainbow, up on high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. It's floating around you. And then you hear faint, attenuated by distance, a thin groan. 
It's another decayer in there. <laughs> and you try to pretend, no, it's not happening. And you sit there and you look at your, your geographics. You try to get involved in the rainfall of the Andes. And there's all those chicks and it still isn't doing it. Boom, boom, boom. And that fist is hitting you from inside. And she keeps saying, the doctor will be with you in just a minute. <laughs> you hear that scream in there? And you know somewhere there is a soul in abject torment. And that dentist is in there trying to pack him full of stuff. He's fighting decay. He's trying to keep this poor son of a gun going for another ten minutes. Keep him from falling apart. He's wiring them together and he's putting little solder in there and he's got little braces and bits and stuff in this guy and you hear it in there see? well I am sitting there one day when one of the great moments of insight came to me there is a copy of Look Magazine well now Look Magazine has a page in it I'm going through it you know and there's just chicks and stuff and suddenly there's this page a big beautiful page of questions and answers. How did I know I was going to find the answer? There's staring out from the pages this round, confident face, big rimless glasses, great big grin, and above it it says, Ask Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. He's looking out at me. It is America's greatest humor writer. The greatest humorous America's produced. And there he is, he's looking out, and he answers these questions for millions of look readers all over. By the way, isn't that a great name for a magazine? Look. Look. We've got magazines called Look Peak. When we need something like insight, we get look. And there is the first question. And this taught me a lesson I've never forgotten. It said, Dear Dr. Peel, Dear Dr. Peel, I'm working in this office in the International Bolton Rivet Company. I love my work, Dr. Peel. Every week I get the reports in on time. I work hard. I've been here 15 years, Dr. Peel. But Mr. Bullard, my boss, blames everything on me. Every ten minutes, the door opens, and he comes roaring out, and he says, Craven, what did you do now? <laughs> Dr. Peel, I didn't do nothing. What can I do, Dr. Peel? Please. I love my job. Signed, Craven. Well, I'm reading this, you know, and I can hear off in the distance the sound of that drill going, and I can hear those faint, <laughs> and there's Grandma Moses looking down on me. And Dr. Peel is standing there confident, big rimless glasses. And his answer, Craven, please stand up, Craven. Get up off your knees. Craven, that's a very difficult problem. But we understand it, Craven. Yes, that sort of thing happens around here all the time. And it hit me. It happens to Dr. Peel. I said, what do you mean, Dr. Peel? And all of a sudden, I get this image of Dr. Peel. 
sitting in his study with the light coming down through those stained glass windows, you know. He's turning out an LP or he's, he's writing an article, you know, or getting out a book. And all of a sudden the door slams open and there's this giant bearded figure. What did you do now? It's the boss. Well, you know, I get these moments of... Speaking of the boss, what radio station is this, gang? Come on, tell it out. That's right, let's go. Let's bring out some guts here, gang. Why, we're down here. Where are we, friends? The limelight in the heart of festering Greenwich Village. Where truth flows like a great river down to the sea. And where sensitivity, right, gang? Blossoms like a mulberry bush in a vast oasis of beauty. Right, gang? Oh, man. You know, isn't it, isn't it discouraging to realize that 18 million people figure if they get to the village that they'd finally make it? Well, here we are, gang. There ain't no place else to go. I mean, going to Cleveland ain't going to help. Well, I'm telling you, I read this piece, you see, and I say, you know, by George, that is true. No matter where the guy is, no matter who he is, no matter how big he is, there is somebody always yelling at him. And if it isn't somebody really in the next room, there is some little bullard inside of you. How many guys go through life with a little thing sitting right next to their gut somewhere? And about every 15 minutes, especially when things get a little quiet in the office, you know, and the phone stops ringing, or maybe at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're laying flat out on your sack. You're trying to get to sleep. All of a sudden, that little voice starts hollering. When are you going to get on a stick? When are you going to quit faking it? When are you going to start really doing something? And you say, what do you mean? Why, what do you mean? Do you realize I am now second agency account executive in charge of the pickle pot? I am in charge of all pickle copy that comes out of my agency. This is no small achievement for a man of 88. And that voice says, oh yeah? You haven't written a pickle ad in four years that you can read, you phony. Phony, phony, phony. And then the guy gets up, goes into the john. <laughs> he looks in the mirror, opens the thing up, and he takes out one of those little Alka-Seltzer tablets. <laughs> and you know that little Alka-Seltzer man that sings? That little Alka-Seltzer cat that runs back and forth in the Alka-Seltzer ads? He's hoping that that little man will sing madrigals of hope to him. <laughs> Down it goes. And then all he gets is, boop, a big fat burp floats out. All of, oh yes, there. Oh man, you never know what's going to score, I'll tell you. 
I mean, I, with the risk of being in bad taste, have you ever sat there quietly in a very official or gathering, and all of a sudden you feel something stirring inside of you, see? And you say, well, and they, they start to talk to you. And somebody says, what's the matter, Fred? And you say, nothing. I'm... Then all of a sudden, and you don't recognize the taste. And you wonder what in the world is still stuck down there. You know, it, you get the feeling that something is still there from when you were eight. There is an old hot dog that you ate once at Comiskey Park in a doubleheader, and it's still stuck in some crevasse down there. And it's beginning to make itself known. <laughs> that funny feeling. Well, I read this piece, you see. And I say to myself, Every last guy has got 18 little voices that are yelling at him. Now, there's, there's two different ways to react to this. There is the one guy who never, ever in his life learned to ignore it. And this guy goes through life skulking. And every time he makes a move and tries to stand up, that boy starts, I'm falling, falling. He doesn't want anybody else to hear, see? He hides by the water cooler. And that little voice says, you're a phony. You're a phony. You don't love that chick. You don't like your wife. You hate your kids. You're a phonus balonus. When are you going to be honest? Once in your life. And he goes back and sits at his desk and starts making paperclip sculpture. Yes, but then there's the other guy. Somewhere along the line... The other guys learned to turn away. Pretend that voice wasn't even being heard. They turned down the vast hearing aid of the soul. And they never hear that voice. They walk around. They've learned how to carry cocktails. You know that look? The people who really belong at cocktail parties. Don't you have that feeling of at least 75% of the cocktail parties that you go to that you're not a cocktail party goer. That half of the meetings you go to, the other guys are really involved. They're talking about this big project, you know. Well, we're going to open up the Ohio Territory and we're going to take care of you. Charlie, you take care of the copy. Fred, you handle all the other media. And there you're sitting there and you keep saying, oh, who cares, who cares? Your eyes keep getting shorter and you keep falling asleep. And somewhere you feel the other guys are with it. Well, they ain't any more than you. That's a good thing to know. They have just turned off the game on that little voice. And they walk through life. You know that beautiful cocktail party stance? You kind of hold a hip like this. You hold it, you sway a little bit, and you rock on the balls of your feet. And you have all the proper names at your fingertips, right on the edge of your tongue. Why, yes, it's uh, like something right out of Kafka. <laughs> yes. Kafka, you never read Kafka in your life, you know. Yes, uh, of course, reminds me a little bit of Fellini. You know, just a little touch of the surrealism with, with an interesting attitude towards sentimentality. You just sort of play it as though not only have you read Kafka, somehow 
you are just a little above and to the right of Kafka. You see, yes, he's rather interesting. You should see what I've got in me. It'll come out one day. Well, within every last family circle sitting right here, there are at least 5,000 secrets that are being held. I'd love to know what they are. Kids who, ha who can tell you stories of untold debauchery. Adults who've got things they have not said and they will not say for the rest of their lives. You know, it's interesting how many kids figure that all the rottenness that came along was discovered in their 13th year. <laughs> they really do. They really figured that's why every young novelist writes a fantastic novel about sex. He figures it's a new development. You see? He really does. And he understands that nobody before him does. Nobody before him knows the true beauty, the fantastic soul-searching passion of this magnificent new discovery, sex. And all the while, you know, it's going on all around in this fantastic fruitcake of life. You can't, you know, you just can't for the life of you see your mother in the front seat of a convertible after the basketball game at 2 o'clock in the morning with some guy you never even saw. It ain't your father, it's somebody else, you know. Can you imagine looking at that scene? And you see your mother there? And there's a tall, skinny guy with pimples? And your father is a short, fat guy with pimples? You know? And your mother's got this big scene going on. You know, you want to say, hey, mom, cut it out. That ain't bad. <laughs> no, we don't want to believe that anything like that ever happened. <laughs> ever see. And so for that reason, all the kids, as each one hits 13, he figures that it's all new. And it better be kept that way. <laughs> because right at this group here, I can see all these little secrets floating around. Well... On this night, in my 12th year, over 12,000 years ago, a fantastic moment happened to me that is still buried as a secret inside of me. Now, all of us know that when we go through that period of about 12, 13, and 14, there is the illusion, sometimes it even lasts to about 20 there is the illusion of infinite wisdom. And not only that, the illusion of being able to spot a phony a mile away. There is also that illusion that anybody else around you who is older is a fool, an idiot, and a knave. And a bumbling old fathead, you know? You get this feeling, so you go through it. You just do. It's a natural thing. Well, for about two months before Christmas. Now, you remember, I'm living out in Indiana, northern Indiana, where we got a lot of territory, you know, there's a lot of vacant lots, there are a lot of forests, there's a swamp there, there's eight million spatsies, these are sparrows, birds, and the kids lived in close proximity with the spatsies and the snakes, the turtles and the birds and the bums, everything was all going, see, out there. And one of the big things to have in that neighborhood was a BB gun. Well, about, I'd say, roughly September, I began to lay the groundwork.
I began to establish that what I wanted was a BB gun. And I began to show my mother these great BB gun ads, you know. To any of you who don't know what a BB gun is, it's an air rifle. And I used to show her these ads that showed Red Rider special carbine model with a, with a compass in the stock, you know. Signed by the Red Rider. <laughs> and they had these beautiful Daisy Model 200s. There was a Benjamin pump gun. Well, I was a Daisy man. I, I, oh yeah, the, I, I had an idea, you know, like guys, even at the beginning of their career, they begin to have myths and illusions about what brand is the best. There are nine million guys that think Ford's rattle. That's their myth. There are eight million guys who say uh, Chevy's don't hold up. That's their myth. Each guy has a myth. Well, I believe that Benjamin pump guns didn't have power. That was my myth. And I believe that the Red Rider model was for sissies. The only one that was a good one was a Daisy. A Daisy model 200 that had 200 copper BBs in it. That's what the 200 stood for. And it was a carbine model, and I kept saying, that's what I want. And beginning in September, my mother kept saying, you'll shoot somebody's eye out. <laughs> that's a real mother phrase. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. I said, oh, Mom, what do you mean? I know how to handle a BB gun. I shoot Bruners all the time. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. Now, I'm not going to have all the doctor bills and all that. You'll shoot somebody's eye out. Oh, Mom, I'm only going to shoot spatsies. She says, you're going to shoot somebody's eye out, and I'm not going to buy you a BB gun. Well, you know that slow, erosive process that kids learn very early in life. That is the wine. You know, you begin to develop that. I can still whine great. You notice that? One of the few skills that remain from my childhood. You know, quite out loud. Oh, I use it all the time at the station. They call me in the sales department. Well, you did it again. I say, oh, crying out loud, you guys. Oh, wow. They can't stand the wine. And it began, it was like the Chinese water torture. About every third day, I would just spend the entire day just free-form whining. That high pitch through the nose. And she'd say, why don't you go out and do something? Get out of the way. You're under, underfoot all the time. I would wait two beats. One, two. She'd say, now get out of here and quit whining. Oh, you're driving me out of my skull. You're whining. You just got to keep going, you know. You got to keep hitting them. Well, I figured I was beginning to make headway. Because you know that funny little self-satisfied look that people get when they say, Oh boy, are you going to be surprised on Christmas? You know, oh wow. Well then, you know, you, you learn early when to start attenuating the wine. So I'm playing on this wine, you know, like a vast organ. See, pulling the stops. I'd wait. Then I'd say, well, maybe I better make sure. So it's Friday afternoon. I'd say, hey, Mom. She'd say, what? Just reminding her I ain't giving up, you know. Well, every second day she is saying, you're going to shoot somebody's eye out. Boy, if you get a BB gun and you shoot somebody's eye out, you're really going to have trouble. You hear that? Then I knew I was in. 
I knew I was it. See, I'm pretending I don't know. I, oh, Ma, gee whiz. Well, I got to have a BB gun, Ma. Wow. She said, look, if you're going to shoot somebody's eye, and if, if, if you're not careful, if you've got a BB gun and you're not careful, I'm going to take that away, and your father's going to break it right in half. You know that rotten, snotty look that a kid has? Oh, this old doll doesn't know nothing, you know. What a fool, you know. That, that constant, you're going to break somebody's eye, you're going to bust it. Well, do I have to tell you, two days before Christmas, it's in that beautiful, beautiful winter time that they have out in the Midwest. The snow has been coming down for three days. It's getting higher, you know. And in school, you know that excitement you build up in school? where they're singing all the Christmas carols. And every couple of days we're singing things like Silent Night. Oh, all the while I can see me with that Daisy 200. <laughs> shooting somebody's eye out, you know. <laughs> and I knew who I was going to get right away, you know. <laughs> well, we've got this whole thing building up, you see. And, and, and that's the excitement. We're cutting out, out of green paper, little Christmas trees. You know that? You remember when you used to cut those out? You had little round pieces of red paper and yellow, and everybody makes a Christmas tree and takes it home, you know, on a piece of manila paper. And you write Randy or Dickie on the bottom, you know. You say, here, Ma, Christmas card, Ma. Hoping, you know, that she'll look at you and say, oh, he should have three BB guns, you know, for this beautiful... And they're singing, and they've got the Christmas candy. And finally, the day before Christmas, our school always let out. The day before Christmas Eve, like the 23rd, and they have the big party in school. And you know how, how Christmas parties are in school? They're a very special kind of party. All the kids, half of them are singing in the choir, and the other half are... They give each other little presents, like kazoos, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> little fun things, and we've all taken names of people and given them the little gift. And the big thing is heading right at us. And boy, the excitement is growing. It's, just, it's getting almost like a mushroom cloud, like some great big bomb going off. And now it is Christmas Eve. And our house... The presents were put under the tree on Christmas Eve. And we would be all excited. The tree would be trimmed all afternoon. And finally people are sneaking in there. And we, we always went to bed. We had a whole thing in the family. You know, we went to bed. And the next day we would wake up and our presents would be there. They wouldn't be there the night before. They'd be there the next morning. And so, 7 a.m. dawns bright and crisp. You could see that snow hanging out there, and I am out of that bed like a shot. Boom, you know, into there, pow, I'm digging through all the junk, you know, looking. You know, I'm knocking the sleds and stuff aside. My kid brother's already crying, you know. I'm looking. Oh, there it is. And it's all wrapped in red paper with ribbons, and it's unmistakably a rod. <laughs> and it's heavy. And I can hear those BBs going, you know that sound? I rip it open, and there it is. A beautiful, chromium-plated, Model 200 Daisy Air Rifle. Well, with it came a little package of paper targets. So I immediately rushed back into the bedroom. I'm putting on my high tops. 
Got all the stuff, you know, my sheepskin coat. I got my hat on, you know, with the goggles up here. Boy, and I am out there now. Everybody's asleep in the house. Remember that my, my mother's in the bed. My father's in the bed. My kid brother's unwrapping packages. And I am out by the front porch. In those days, I was a glasses wearer. I had been wearing glasses since nine. And I'm out there with my glasses polished. <laughs> and up there on the steps, I put my target. You know, the steps come down, I got the target. Back through the snow, I go, cock the son of a gun. You know that, that great stance? You take your BB gun like this. I could see that target down there. That bullseye wavering back and forth before my Daisy Model 200 sight. And it goes, boom, bang, crash! <laughs> My glasses are in Stryker's yard across the street. 8,000 pieces. It has missed my eye by a quarter of a millimeter. And I don't know whether any of you glasses wearers know what it's like to break your glasses at the age of 12 or 13. That is a fantastic family problem with my BB gun. They're gone. I can't find them. I'm staggering around. My gun is holding my head. The first shot, I'm telling you. I walk. Here they are. There's glass all over the place. I pick them up. They're crooked. They're hanging sideways. Up the steps I go. I take the paper and I wrap it around. I put it under there. And there's a scratch on the side of my head. You know, the whole scene. I'm scared out of my wits. Oh, boy. And I put my glasses down there. I'm trying to hide them. My kid brother's walking around. Crunch! I say, Randy, you busted my glasses! Randy, my glasses, man! He busted my glasses! And my mother came out. She says, you broke his glasses. Wow! my kid brother's crying and I'm sitting there with that fantastic feeling of that beautiful feeling of total lack of guilt I say hey ma can I take my BB gun out and try it ma so within each one of us friends <laughs> there are those little secrets and six months ago, I'm sitting with my mother, and I said, Hey, Ma, do you remember when Randy busted my glasses? She says, Yes, you know. You know, I still feel sad about yelling at him like that on Christmas morning, but he shouldn't have done it. And my kid brother still looks at me, even to this day, with a funny look. I have not gotten a Christmas card from him since I was ten. So, gang, let's applaud Christmas and hope that next year it'll be better.